This conversation was recorded on the Monday after the election that happened earlier this year and touches on mental health issues, including bipolar disorder, depression and anxiety. I sort of didn't draw at all in my teens because when I was a kid, I used to doodle all the time and people would tell me I was good. I actually used to doodle in all of my sister's books, which she hated. I used to just go through them all and draw my favourite cartoon characters. If you read the nativity story in my house, there was Pink Panther was the fourth wise man. That's a very little known fact. But I, I had everyone telling me you're going to be a famous artist one day. And so that made me just not want to do art at all. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. I want to get better, better, better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with Paul. Hello, Paul. Hello, Dave. So the first question that I ask everybody is, how do you know me? Well, I guess I know you through Arts Emergency. I remember very distinctly drawing your portrait at some point. I can't quite remember if I followed you or if you followed me first, but... Because I get quite a lot of the people who get the avatars drawn by me follow me. Most unfollow me within a week, but you've stuck there. So <laughs> <laughs> We started off just having that one connection and then we started actually discussing things on Twitter. So we've sort of developed topics of conversation and whatnot. Yeah, it's a new kind of way of making friends, isn't it? Yeah, like, sure. Through definitely. Twitter or whatever. But you're definitely somebody who, you know, regularly is checking, I check in with or you check in with me and we're just like... It's you sort of like yeah, it's, it's it's basically what you have with Facebook people, but you yeah, don't, you don't actually know the person. I tend to sort of use it to communicate with people more than post my own stuff most of the time. When I first signed up, I used to think of it as basically like a text messaging service, like it's that sort of thing. Except you're sending it to everyone online, and you can also make little ironic status updates if you if you feel like it. Yeah, and have them uh, either ignored or retweeted. It doesn't bother me too much these days. I enjoy both your communications well, you. and your and your outward content, if that's how I'm going to phrase it. Well, do you know it. what? Sometimes on Twitter as well, because this is one of those things where, I mean, because I know we're both quite socially anxious people in, in some <laughs> respects. The thing about Twitter as well is you send a lot of things in the heat of a moment, and then like a few minutes will pass, and then you'll start going over what you wrote and think, oh, did, did I actually come across as meaning what I intended it to mean? I'll quite often send you tweets and then read them back and think, oh, shit, is he going to think I mean like this really offensive thing that's the opposite? <laughs> so then I start sending you more tweets, trying right. to sort of like clarify what you haven't even responded to. Right. Yet. And then by, that's like, there's been a few times when I've said to you, oh, by the way, sorry for like eight or nine tweets I've sent you in the past 10 minutes. Yeah, no, but I don't <laughs> mind that, cause, partly because I do that myself. Like, I, I totally get that, that, that impulse. Direct messages is the worst for that, because mm. unlike with tweets, you can basically just keep writing <laughs> and like, it doesn't seem like you're tweeting or anything. You're not like, so I've, I've, and I look back and I'm like, wow, I've sent somebody, you know, basically like five paragraphs of text and uh, they haven't responded yet. So if they don't like it, I've sent them a hell of a lot more <laughs> more of it. Um, At least yeah. Twitter doesn't tell you when the other person's read it, though. No, that that's what true. That ruined Facebook for me because I'm not on Facebook anymore. All the stuff I was saying about second-guessing myself when I've sent these messages out, it is such a digital reflection of how I'm like in real life. Yeah. Like, I spend so much time just altering how I act with people based on my imagined responses that they're having internally when I'm trying to learn just to react to what, what they actually say. You right. Know? <laughs> yeah, and it's, <laughs> it's, really difficult. it's definitely a killer on, like, Facebook when it says that somebody's read it. Mm. I mean, it's in a way, it's useful if you're using Facebook the way I use it, which is often to try and arrange, like, yeah. events or whatever. But in a way, that makes it even worse because I'm like, 
okay, so I sent that thing three days ago and they've seen it, but they've not replied to it. Does that mean they hate me? Yeah, I just, I've just know. remembered as well. We had this conversation in email a few weeks ago when we were talking <laughs> and I think I'd got your email and, and like, you know, when you get something in the moment just isn't right to reply to the extent that you need to. Yeah, right. And then, and then we, we sort of mentioned it a few days later. And oh, by the way, I, I am interested. I'm just waiting until I've got a moment to give you a reply that this email is worthy of, this right. topic is worthy of. And so now every time we email each other and it's been a few days, it's like, oh, sorry, I haven't been in touch. <laughs> I just, like, I'm tempted to just get that as my signature because right. I think I say that to everybody pretty much. Yeah, no, that's quite a good idea to get that as a signature. <laughs> I mean, I always feel that as well. And I often, like, I apologise for not getting back to somebody and it's only been two days or something. And they're like... Mm. What are you talking about? That apology weirdly can make people who who regularly spend a long time before they reply feel yeah. feel like it's an, a kind of attack on them. Like, sorry that I uh, haven't replied. And then I like, hang on, I don't reply for weeks, and you're apologising for this. Like, what, you know, what, I think what that am I? I think that the digital age has actually changed that because I remember when I first got a mobile phone when I was uh, about sixteen or seventeen, I think, when I was just leaving school. The expectation was that if you got a text message, you replied to it within five minutes, otherwise you got text messages asking why you hadn't replied it. And obviously we're teenagers at the time, so it's not something... <laughs> I'm, not suggest- I'm not saying that's the way it should be. Yeah. But it's, it's only when we sort of get into the realm of tweets and emails and things like that, but now it seems like people can just dismiss it for later more readily than they used to be able to. Yeah. I mean, because I've been watching Black Mirror recently where they go through all these scenarios of how technology is going to like impact the future. Yeah. Just imagine in a point where you're having a conversation with somebody and they see something and you can like leave a 10 second gap and it not be as awkward as it normally is. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's quite nice for socially awkward people. Yeah, I wouldn't mind it. I mean, I'm that's gonna... kind of, especially like for introverted people as well, like that's kind of like what you need. I mean, I'm not exactly introverted, but I, I, I have a lot of sympathy with introverts. <laughs> I love it when you tweet from parties as well. Oh yeah, right. Because yeah, <laughs> that is like my my inner monologues when I when I see what you're putting out. Because I can just relate to you so much. It's good when I'm tweeting at parties because I'm always like feeling awkward, and then I tweet, and then I get like you and a few other people yeah, saying like, "Yeah, yeah well, absolutely, that's how I feel." And I'm like, "Oh, thank God." I think I, I did a follow Friday on a Wednesday just because your party tweets were so interesting. <laughs> Well, that's very kind. Um, yeah, so the second question I ask everybody is, what do you do now? Well, now, much in the same vein as what brought me to meet you in the first place, I'm an illustrator, a freelance illustrator. And I'm kind of glad you've asked me that as well, because the thing I found when people ask me what I do for a job, I think it's with me having so many years of hearing how being an artist isn't a proper job. Right. And I had one guy insist to me that I don't have to pay taxes. This is after I'd done three tax returns as well, so I was pretty sure that we did yeah yeah when people ask me what I do for a living I do find it very hard not to reply without sounding apologetic almost yeah you know what I mean and again it's like I was saying before about making presumptions I then tend to front load it with something that I think will lessen the impact of me saying I'm an artist right like you know and I need to stop doing that because the thing is I like I've been working as a freelance illustrator for about five years now I graduated in 2010 I haven't been sort of getting enough work to be full-time that whole period the sort of first few years it was you know the typical freelance beginnings when you get any clients interested in you and stuff but before that I did spend a lot of time working in retail and and that sort of thing and I work so much harder now than I ever did on the shop floor right it's like if people think I was doing this job just to sort of slack off and I mean, fair enough, I do live the life of an 11-year-old. I just doodle all day and eat peanut butter and jam sandwiches. <laughs> but I'm also, like, uh, working, like, 14, 15 hour days. Right. And it's all really stressful. And in some ways, I, I do sort of think that 
I would prefer almost work in a shop. Which might sound, I know where, because I know you're taking the sort of freelance route as well. And yeah, but I do understand, I think I do understand where you're coming from, but you probably should f- finish that thought for the <laughs> listeners, yeah. It kind of, the problem is it kind of, it ruins your hobby when you're doing it as a career, which I did, I really struggled with for the first few years, because I'm, I'm a type of person who, who schedules my life a lot, so I've sort of got a segment of art which I do as a hobby, which is the comic strips and stuff, mm-hmm. and then the illustration work is my job. Right. You know what I mean? So right. I, I sort of, I also separate that into time periods as well. Like I'll only do my hobby stuff at night and I'll only do my uh, my work stuff in the daytime, which is a really good thing to do if, if you are sort of starting off and struggling with uh, with keeping a schedule. Because when you're working from home as well, it's so tempting just to work all the time. Yeah, that's kind of what I do. Yeah, I used to, I'd be up until like <laughs> two or three in the morning working. Well, actually, I'm, I've, I guess I've got to a good point now or a bad point. Like I, I, I do have more time off than I, than I have. That I, when I had a day job, I never mm. had any time off. I would come back and I would just work all night. Whereas now, I, I, somehow I've managed to like get to the point where I can forgive myself for taking time out. Yeah, that's a big <clears> thing because <throat> you do feel guilty. Yeah, and it's kind of like a little bit what you what you're talking about of like when you're working in the day on a on a project. Like it's so hard for me to see what I'm doing as work you know like if I'm editing all day I'm likely yeah. to say to kind of feel like I haven't done any work mm. and uh, clearly I have <laughs> you know and it's 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 this funny thing where we don't we, we kind of relegate all of these different things into different categories don't we and, and that's the problem like if you're if you're using up energy then you know that's you you've used up energy whatever you want to call it doesn't yeah. matter and so if you've if you've been using up energy from nine till you know seven or eight <laughs> o'clock that's a long long day of using up energy whatever you want to call it like work or yeah, whatever for sure, definitely. it doesn't matter it's and so if you don't replenish that energy uh you, you know you, you're working all the time with, with you know exhausted and so i'm trying you do, to you do tend that. to have massive productivity for a few days and then i need like a week to recover if i if i just work all the time right but also another thing this sort of leads into i should um warn you because this is the first sort of long conversation that david and i've actually had we met briefly at an arts emergency thing didn't that's we? right yeah. a month or so ago actually a bit longer than that but um i was going to say the thing you you'll learn about me is i'm quite prone to tangents that's so, all right. <laughs> I mean, that's what my show's built on. Yeah, it's a good job that it tends to go over an hour normally. Yeah. I'm happy for that. But where I used to work, as I was saying, working all through the night and, and just non-stop every day, I didn't realise until a few years ago that's actually a symptom of my bipolar when I'm manic, and I hadn't sort of attributed that at all, because I, I, obviously I'm bipolar. Um, from well, not, what I just yeah, said. Yeah, yeah, now, now obviously. <laughs> Within the context of a previous <laughs> statement, I'm bipolar. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it was something I already knew, though. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's one of the things we probably tweeted about. Yeah, that's right. Um, we very in-depth conversations yeah, on Twitter. Yeah. It makes, it, it makes me feel better to talk about it, because, like, it's... Me too. Um, I mean, I haven't got bipolar, but I've got yeah. depression and anxiety, and it's similar. Like, There's a lot of common ground. It feels grounds. better to talk yeah. about it, yeah. And I, I sort of realised... It was actually through watching... Um, have you seen that Stephen Fry documentary series, Secret Life of a Manic Depressive, I think it's called. I, might I haven't seen that. that, no. I think it's in two parts. It's on YouTube. It's worth watching. And I was watching it a few years ago, and it's like a sort of documentary sort of thing, and they're interviewing all different bipolar sufferers. And in one of the parts, he speaks to this artist. And I was watching it, like, this is me, just completely... All these things which I hadn't even thought of a second were to do with being symptomatic of a manic stage. 
suddenly became really clear to me and because of that I can now manage it when I know that I'm doing something because of a chemical imbalance in my brain as opposed to thinking that it's actually what's going to get the best work done. Through knowing that I can now say okay I want to work until 2am but if I work until a set time and obviously it changes if I've got crazy deadlines which happens quite a lot of the time. Right. I tend to get more work done just through being able to be productive for longer than just burning myself over overnight you know. Well, that's the thing. I mean, it's a similar thing for me. Like, I've, I've come to learn that if I don't take time out or whatever you want to call it, self-care, like, that, then I won't do as good work. And I will also get much lower depressed states and much more kind of sustained periods of anxiety. Well, that's the thing. I mean, the flip side of that, of when I'm manic, I work lots. When I'm in a depressive mood, I cannot None. work yeah. at all. But um, the other thing is, is I'm not me- I don't take any medicine for it either. Right. I'm not medicated. Me neither. Which is, yeah, I was listening to some of the old episodes where you were talking about the sort of depression that you experience, and there's a lot of common ground there with me as well. The reason that I can go, that I feel anyway, without um, taking medication at this stage, is that I've been, I guess I should say experiencing rather than suffering from bipolar. Well, I guess the fact that I feel like I can handle it without medication sort of, you know, bears witness to that. But um, I've, I've sort of had it for about 11 or 12 years now. And in my early 20s, I really was suffering with it. And it wasn't diagnosed. So I, I was sort of clueless to the fact that it wasn't how somebody was supposed to feel, you know. I used to really obsess over things quite a lot. Like, well, obviously I still do with the second guessing what people <laughs> think. But in a much more damaging way, I used to obsess over, over people in particular. Like. Right. And I also had no idea why I was getting so low for these periods and I sort of realised after a few years that it was coming and going in waves without being related to anything that was actually happening to me. Right. So um, that's when I saw a doctor about it and he sort of diagnosed me. But I was really fearful that if I did start taking them that it would affect my art because I am a person who sort of, even though... Because of the field I work in, illustration, most of the stuff I've done has sort of been in educational work. You know, books which go into schools and stuff like that, where they show a kid a typical street scene and they say, which way is the red car facing? You know, I've drawn so many red cars in the past few years, I can't tell you. And uh, so there's, there's not really the personal aspect to my art in what I do most of the time. But the, the stuff which I do do as a hobby... Well, it is, it is driven by emotion, but I tend to be inspired by music quite a lot because I'm, I have quite an emotional connection with music. I was just thinking this morning of like things to tell you from my childhood. One thing which, it, it sounds kind of pathetic in one way, but I can sort of still relate to it a little bit. I remember saying to my mum when I was about 11 or 12 that when certain songs came on the radio, they made me want to cry and she wanted to turn off. I remember my dad was upstairs and he shouted down something like, oh, can you turn this song off? It's making me want to cry. Like, you know, and so obviously mocking me a little bit about right. it. In a sort of, a very sort of unaware sense of the fact that it was an emotional experience which I really didn't like, you know. Yeah. Which sounds so ridiculous to somebody who doesn't experience that. And so now I, I, I do listen to music and then I'll get into a certain um, mental state from listening to, say, Nine Inch Nails. That's my go-to band most of the time. Or Pink Floyd, actually. That's a recent one. I've been obsessed with The Wall, Pink Floyd's The Wall. That sort of... That got me through one of my worst bipolar lows. I was watching that movie and uh, and it sort of... Have you seen The Wall? I have, yeah. I'll, I won't go into too much detail because it's obviously a fucking huge film and yep. massive double album. 
But while I can't relate to a lot of the specific stuff that he's talking about, the stories to do with his uh, dad being killed in the war and his mother being really overprotective, and obviously I can't relate to being a rock star and hallucinating I'm a Nazi. (laughs) But he has all this stuff about how he obviously begins to build a mental wall to sort of isolate himself from the you know the people who love him and stuff and and at the end of the movie um because i'm a huge fan of gerald scarf as well who animated the movie and did a lot of pink right, right. artwork and then the last sort of song in the movie is this big hallucinated scene where he's where the character pink is is like in this trial this mock trial and there's this big monstrous judge who's just like a giant arse on legs which <laughs> i really love the design for gerald scarf has always really fantastically demented designs which i really wish i could do into my work but i just I don't have the uh, the imagination to just draw things without reference, you know. But I've also learned to recognise that what I can do is a skill in itself. So, yeah, you know, absolutely. To beat myself up about it. This trial scene, he's... Um, and sorry if anyone has watched The Wall and hated yeah, it. Yeah, spoiler but as well. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, at the end of it, there's this whole scene where it's all traumatic and this judge declares that the wall should be torn down. And I was watching that at, at this moment when I was really low. And I'd also, I'd gotten myself into a situation where I had gotten over-attached to somebody and I was sort of reeling from the after-effects of it. And there was something really cathartic in the moment of having something I recognised just have this big, massive climax at the end. And I think that was what started me off relating more to the fact that a lot of people experience bipolar and it's not just me. And when I was younger, I remember thinking that there must just be a switch that comes on when you reach a certain age where you don't worry about anything and you don't have these anxieties or insecurities because whenever you see an adult when you're 11 or 12 they never seem to have the problems which I have now right right and then I remember reaching a point when I mentioned my dad the relationship I had with my dad it's sort of it's difficult because he kind of inadvertently hurt me a lot when I was a kid whilst meaning really well right so I hate to vilify him for it and I don't hold anything against him now but when I was a kid um I was quite well I was I, I was fat at school I wasn't hugely overweight but I was probably the fattest kid in the class so I was the fat kid you know right and I used to get bullied for it at school I know you, you had some bullying issues at yeah school yeah well. secondary school was my 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 harsh uh, bullying time mm. though it didn't start in primary school primary school <laughs> bullying seems even more confusing to me than than secondary school bullying actually now I think of it I think it might have been the first year of high school right that's because I just I right remembered a moment to when the way people were interacting with me changed and I didn't understand what had happened, mm. you know. But yeah, but I was getting bullied a bit for it at school. I remember we were watching um, Lord of the Flies, the movie Lord of the Flies. Right, yep. Everyone decided to say I looked like that piggy character. Right. And they were saying it was me. And then the moment when he gets killed, everyone was like, yay, he went up and started cheering and stuff. So I was like feeling a bit shit about that. And then also, because I've always been really shy about getting up on stage and... and and just even in front of um, people I know, people I like, I've always hated getting up and doing anything. And in fact, when we got our yearbook to leave the last year at high school, the teachers had to write a little quote about people in their main sort of tutored class uh, that describes them. And my quote was, Sir, you know that award you've got to give me, can you give it me in class and not in front of a whole school, please? <laughs> so that, I must have said that far more often than I uh, imagined. But I remember I was in school one day on my birthday and I so did not want them to sing me happy birthday. And, uh, and the teacher found out and he got everyone to sing me happy birthday and they all sang happy birthday, dear fatty. Oh, fuck. 
I've no idea how the hell they knew to sort of synchronise. Teachers should just stay out of that <laughs> stuff as well. They don't ever understand. They always, like, my experience of bullying was generally any teacher that was actively trying to try, like officially trying to trying to stop it made yeah, it worse. Yeah. Uh, some of them weren't even trying to stop it. Some of them were just joining in. And it was the, the teachers who it was the teachers who didn't intervene but just provided a safe space. They were the ones who who helped me. It was none of the like. You can't you can't control a whole group of kids and make them nice. You and just I, can't do that. And he, he's kind of he said to me afterwards. I think they meant it really sort of awkwardly. And uh, and so yeah, I was having these issues with being bullied for being overweight at school. And you know how all these little things that your family members say to you when you're a kid that are completely they would not have any memory of saying but just stick with you. Yeah. I remember I was going in the fridge one day for like an extra lolly or something and my sister who's a few years older than me saying to my mum he's getting too fat don't let him eat anymore. <laughs> and my, the thing I was going to say about my dad is he used to say to me oh you're putting a bit of meat on aren't you? And so all this stuff. The ironic thing is now he thinks that I'm really underweight and he keeps mentioning to me you need to eat more. Right. And I, keep, I, I feel like saying to him, you know, I've spent my whole life being bullied for being fat. I mean, I'm not underweight. I've just, I, I have I wouldn't say so. No, it's just because I've... Well, see, this is the thing, right? Nobody knows this. Because I was overweight as a kid, I used to always suck my gut in. That's how I naturally sit and stand. So even though I'm in average, a sort of normal weight, I mean, I'm sort of... I am right now about just over 12 stone. I'm about six foot-ish. Yep. And so, you know, that's a perfectly normal you, weight. You look like a perfectly normal weight to me. Although, what is a perfect... I mean... I know, you know it's, all, it's all sort of... There are many, many perfectly normal weights, I guess. Um, yeah. Yours yeah. is a good one. And there's a lot of other good ones out there. But, yeah. So, it just sort of... It's because I, I still suck my gut in, in, sort of instinctively. It's sort of... You know how you have certain ways that you hold yourself that are comfortable? That's sort of just something that I... I'm so really sad thinking about it now that I've sort of trained myself to always suck my gut in for not wanting to look fat. Right. People, you know? Right. <clears throat> I sort of have that relationship with my dad when I was younger where he would make all these little comments to me that would stick. But you see, the thing is, my dad, um, I mean, I love my dad lots. As I said, I, I don't want to vilify him in any sense because he's a really sort of... I've come to realise as I've got older, he's me under a different set of circumstances. Right. I can completely relate <laughs> to him so much more now. He didn't finish school. He hasn't sort of had much higher education so he's I would say his I mean he's not stupid by any means he's a mechanic and, and he sort of he does a job which I can't do yeah I'm not sort of pushing him below me by any standards but he's I would say he's at your sort of general public sort of level of of thinking outside the box if that makes sense right he's sort of he's in the, the box that most people are in in terms of what they know about like yeah I'm really interested in quantum physics and, and things like that and I can't even begin to have a conversation with him about it because there's like 20 points I've got to fill in before I get to the thing that's really interesting to me right you know and so the, the point I'm leading up to is that as I got older and sort of reached a level of education more than he did because I'd always I'd give him stuff back when I was a kid as well you know I'd, I'd say things back to him but as I got older I started being able to insult him better than he could insult me because I could do it in a way that he was sort of not on the same level as you know right and I, I remember the moment I realised that there isn't a switch that comes on and all your insecurity disappear it was a day when I was talking to him about something and, and he started I think it was to do with my hair because he, he's really old fashioned and he hates my hair I have right. dreadlocks he hates me having long hair for one thing and they're sort of just down to my chest level yeah. for the listeners at home and so he'd always make all these little digs to me about like oh isn't it about time we get your hair cut when are you going to get your hair cut 
all this sort of stuff. And one day he really it was really getting to me because I when you when you when you're having dreadlocks you do have bad hair days as well. And I was having a really sort of insecure period. I think I was probably on a bipolar depressive stage. And he kept digging at me and digging at me and I just exploded at him. Not in a sort of shouting at him way, but I just I said something that I knew would really hurt him. Right. And then I saw a look of humiliation in his face that I recognised from when I was a kid when he used to say things to me. And so that sort of was probably about seven or eight years ago now. I did actually, on another occasion, I did tell him that it really upsets me when he keeps making digs about my hair. And uh, he's never mentioned my hair again since that point. And our relationship has kind of simmered down to a more friendlier level. I mean, it was always, it was that thing where the only way we can seem to communicate is through jokey insults to each other. Right, It's literally the only method of communication we have unless, like, somebody's died and you have to get into a more serious tone, you know. Which is really sad, and I do wish I could have a more meaningful conversation with him. Like, we have this thing... I don't think my dad's ever going to listen to this, so I'm, I'm, I'm happy to share this silly thing we have. He only got his first um, tablet computer last year, and it's his first sort of internet experience that he's had. And he was asking me to get him something the other day. And I, I was trying to explain to him how Amazon is different to eBay and all this sort of stuff. He has no sort of concept of the internet. So the chances of him finding this are slim, I'd say. But we have this, this sort of... This way we communicate... This is going to sound so stupid because this sort of originated when I was about 11. Instead of referring to one another, we'd refer to that bloke. Like, if, say, if, if I left a cup out, he'd come in and go, oh, that bloke's left a cup out, you know. Right, like, yeah. That then evolved into tea bloke. So now, like, if there's ever any disagreements between us, like, say, if I've washed my hair in the shower and forgotten to clean it out afterwards, it'll come down and say, oh, tea bloke's left a right mess in, in the shower and all this sort of stuff. And we have times when it's fun and there are times when there are really serious topics of conversation which we can't have a serious conversation about because we frame it in this ridiculous tea bloke narrative. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just like I keep thinking of like how can I have a, a human conversation with my dad? It like drives me crazy. Well, it, it may happen. I mean, you, <laughs> you, you know, it's a, it's a hard thing to get to these places with pe- lots of different kinds of parents. I think people have different problems for how to mm. get to those genuine conversations i mean if you're me you, you, you make a podcast and then get them get them on and that that that, that yeah. in theory does it but i mean i didn't need to do it with my dad because we already have a good conversational friendship I could tell from listening to you talk it was very right sort of... but with my mum I, I do have to try i mean she's just been staying the last four days so it's <laughs> yeah. been complicated but I, I do have to sort of work at that work at that like having a genuine conversation mm. because you build up all of these different techniques to yeah to just to make your life both on both sides easier yeah and then there's they're not, not a lot they're, of they're not helpful hand. after a point you know no, you no, actually need sure. to like get some kind of authentic communication going on mm. and it, it's hard but i mean you know it's it's possible but, well, uh, I have I have a really good relationship with my mother. Right. That's a thing as well. I'm such a mother's boy. <laughs> and uh, I can also, like... See, the thing is, with me saying my dad's old-fashioned and we clash quite a lot on a lot of my sort of lifestyle choices. And I can see where... Even though that I said that I can see my dad as me under a different set of circumstances, so many of my actual traits are clearly from my mum. Right. Like, pictures of my mum from, like, 30 or 40 years ago. She was, like, a real hippie child, like... And I have hippie-ish tendencies, like... Um, I voted green. Right. And um, the environment... Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And I always get asked if I I have weed and I don't smoke anything at all, so they always end up leaving disappointed. So, yeah, I always get that sort of attention, which is 
which is really unfortunate because I have like no experience with drugs whatsoever, which is surprising to some people when I tell them. Well, we vis- visually, I mean, I can understand. I mean, it's a stereotype, and therefore, it's you know, as you're yeah. proving, it's bullshit. But you know, visually, you look like it, someone, especially in a smaller town than London. Yeah. Uh, you're you're the person who people would, yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> I'm not, so just to say, I'm not anti-drugs at all. I'm, I'm actually quite, I mean, I don't like to make objective statements about something I haven't done, but from what I gather from what I've read about it, like I've read quite a lot of Terence McKenna stuff and, and uh, Timothy Leary and, and with my friends that do use it quite a lot. It seems like it, I mean, I, I don't buy into what most of the general public thinks about drugs. Like no. I've heard you say on the podcast before how alcohol is a drug. Yeah. People yeah, absolutely. Sugar's sugar a drug. I mean, drinking yeah. Coke now is that's there's plenty of drug, uh, caffeine and, and sugar both in that. Uh, well, what I think it was they're good, and I'm drinking them. You know, yeah, that's me too. fine. And that, that's yeah. I, I mean, that's how I think of it. Like everybody does use drugs. It's all mind altering. It's just a different way in which people yeah. associate with the illegal drugs. Right. Well, I stayed up for 39 and a half hours the other day, and that was mind altering. <laughs> you don't even have to take drugs to yeah. like, have hallucinations yeah. and, and confusing ex- uh, I was going to ask you if you'd recovered from your... Um... I think so. It takes it takes a while to catch up, doesn't it, mm. like, on sleep when you when you just skip a night. I realise that I've gone off on, like, 20 different tangents. I can't even remember what I started with. Well, that's absolutely fine. Like <laughs> I say, that's that's what makes the show the yeah. show. Going back a little bit, so, you, you know, we've, we've talked about how you're... A, you're an illustrator and that's how you make make your make your living and also that's your passion and we've also said about how we came to meet each other based on arts emergency and i guess that's not entirely clear to people necessarily how that link works how did you come to be doing what you do with arts emergency <laughs> well i was actually fortunate enough to catch wind of arts emergency before it existed really i remember seeing it must have been about three or four years ago now, Josie Long, who is one of the founders of Arts Emergency, tweeted out a link asking if there are any artists who followed her who were interested in helping with a project aimed at supporting students who could no longer afford university and you know arts degrees because of the price increase for tuition fees. And I'd just graduated, so it must have been, yeah, it must have been four years ago. Or five, yeah, four years ago. And I'd actually done, for my final show I'd done a series of portraits of all comedians that I like and Josie's was one of them and so I got in touch and I said oh I've done this drawing of you as well and I sent it along and then actually Neil got in touch with me well Josie sort of thanked me for it but I I then started communicating with Neil that's how I became more involved with it right Josie's quite hard to pin down (laughs) she is but she's I mean I say that as someone who who, yeah who I I mean uh, yeah I've I've met her and had her on my show once and uh, and I think she knows I exist but but, uh, but, and I admire her a lot but yeah she's she's great she's she's very very busy that's mm. part of the problem I think she has I mean I I realised that might have sounded like I was implying that she didn't really get in touch with me she has she's got in touch with me quite a few if I go to a gig she'll always sort of yeah, have yeah, a chat with me you know? right. but yeah so I sent this drawing this portrait of her along and I think they started using it in some of the very early promotional material for Arts Emergency and then they set up a, a, the first proper meeting for like a brainstorming session in London it was actually in uh, in Hausman's bookshop in central uh, London have you ever been in there because it's a really cool shop yeah I think I have yeah it's the kind of thing yeah, that yeah. there's just it's nothing cool. like in Stafford where I'm from where you have all these <laughs> alternative you know titles and and underground comics and you know it's just really cool stuff I, I was like it took me about 20 minutes to get down to the meeting room because I was just gawping at all this <laughs> fantastic literature that I've been deprived right um, and so yeah we went to this session it was um, me Josie Neil and about five other people I think all of whom are mentors now 
And yeah, they basically came up with what is now Arts Emergency. They, in that very meeting, I believe, they came up with the whole idea of mentorship for students who they want to help. They were assigned a mentor for one year. I was actually originally going to do that, but I was also looking at my schedule and deadlines, and I thought, I'm going to get... Also, because I'm not in London, that's another yeah. downside. Well, mentoring is something I would love, love, love it's to do. It's a huge commitment, isn't it? I, I need to get myself to a yeah. place where I'm financially I've stable. I've got so much respect for yeah. all the people who've signed up for it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, that was, um, that was the sort of how I was involved at the start, and then... I, I can't remember if it was my idea or Neil's, probably Neil's. He sort of said to me one day, how do you feel about drawing a portrait of all the people who sign up to donate or as mentors? And I was like, yeah, okay, cool. And so I did like the first hundred for free or something like that. And then eventually he made me take money for it. Right. I, d- I did want to, um, I wanted to sort of do it for free because I just, I wanted to help really, you know, because also... It's similar, like, because I've also been doing work with Macmillan, and I feel when I know this is really messed up because I'm doing a job for them, I'm getting paid for it. That's a perfectly legitimate exchange. But I feel I feel bad just donating twenty pounds to them when they've just paid me like a commission fee, you know? Right. And so I also, even though I was helping out Arts Emergency with the portraits, I I wanted to see them for free as as a kind of. So I was doing something that wasn't just business for them, you know. Yeah. But in the end, Neil said, look, you're doing so much work, just take a fee. So I charged a tiny little amount for like most of the drawings. And and then it got to the point where there was like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people signing up. So right. Neil changed it to now, I think it's only the mentors and people who donate over a certain amount. I'm right, not sure. that's right. Yeah, which yeah, is I, just purely I, because I can't keep up with it. I them. got in under just under the <laughs> under the line or whatever. Yeah. I, I, I managed to get a picture. It's a weird thing time. though, with those portraits, I have like versions of them where they're all stacked up together which I really like most of them I don't like isolated because I have to do them so quick to get through them all like I don't think yours looks particularly like you now that I've met you and I know what you look I like I know what you mean it doesn't look necessarily like me but it does look like the picture that I gave yeah, you so that's, I mean that's, that's the thing you're I'm working off like. a sta- static image and that, for that I always yeah I always like because I sent sent that picture and it's and it's quite a good picture of me. I quite like it, but it's basically it's me wearing a fedora, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I and when I used to wear fedoras, there wasn't this sort of complicated uh, <laughs> stigma around fedora wearing that there is now. It wasn't associated with men's rights activists. Um, <laughs> and just about like just after I sent that picture, I learned about the connection with men's rights activists. Oh, now and you're immortalised. And I was like, no, no, God. no. But actually, the picture doesn't make it doesn't look so much like a like it looks like a fedora, but it, it's not. So obviously in your face as, as well. A, just, a just, just to read again. This is me second guessing what you might be thinking. That wasn't me thinking. Oh, he's wearing a fedora. He'll regret that in a few weeks. I'll make it not look like one. No, no, no. That was just my shit. No, no. It, did, it, does, it does look like a fedora, but it, what it is is a, a photo's a different kind of thing to a picture, which yeah, you know yeah. yourself. And so it doesn't like it doesn't doesn't scream like men's rights act, activists yeah. as much as I feel like the picture now does but anyway all of that is my own insecurities and 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 uh yeah, yeah. not to be listened to probably I mean I, I don't I don't dislike them really it's just as in I'm one of those artists who unless something's the absolute best I can do I'm you know really right. critical of it it's just something that I guess it's a good thing because if I was satisfied with my work all the time, then I wouldn't have any. But people to go. like him. I mean, I think people do like him. I've seen a lot of people like really enjoy yeah, having I, him. I get such a thrill when people I'm not following get retweeted into my timeline, and I see they have one of my drawings right. as their profile picture. It's it's really cute how people 
are really sort of nervous about changing it when they've had it. Like I've had people apologize to me for changing it when I haven't even mentioned it. Like there was somebody who had the profile picture for like two years or something like that and then they changed it. And like a week later I replied to something completely different. She replied and then put another message. By the way, I'm going to put the profile picture back in a week. It's, I just wanted to change that. It's okay. It's not a, it's not a contract you've signed right. by having this picture done. Right. But it, just, it's, it is really cool to see them and just pop up in my timeline. But I mean, I get I get that as well, the reluctance to change it. I had that myself. It's different from a, like, say if you've got a selfie or a photograph, that kind of feels disposable. Yeah. Whereas a piece of art that someone's made of you does not feel disposable you know which is good i mean i guess that's it's good that people don't feel that your art art and work and time is disposable although not so good if people feel that way about photographers who are also (laughs) doing work right yeah yeah also although when um tian and dueb is that how you pronounce it i uh, i'm never sure but i I admire him a lot he's he's great i hope to one day be in a position where i mispronounce his name (laughs) on stage yeah and he uh he (laughs) sorry tian and i probably got that one wrong as well it was a dueb i was unsure of right but he had he had my sort of avatar as his profile picture and then he changed it to another artist drawing and i sent him a message saying have you been seeing other artists behind my (laughs) that's the one occasion when i have complained but most of the time it's fine it's just a, it's a thrill that people have it up as all right know? i mean and uh, that and yeah so i mean that's that's how we came to know each other was through arts emergency because i i yeah i guess i came i became aware of it through josie because i like what she does and i i booked her for my night and and then i sort of met neil as well mm. and i we put on like stand up tragedy did a our tragic christmas gig was a was a fundraiser for arts emergency have you talked about it much on the show uh, I'm what? sort of about arts emergency. I'm, have, I'm sort of going through, and I've heard it mentioned a few yeah, times. Yeah, I, I try to where I can because I really, yeah. really like the cause. I mean, well, I, it's, it's been getting a lot of um, bigging up over the previous weekend. Well, right, seen. at BAFTA and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and which is great and, and and important. And I think it's been being, <laughs> you know, it's been being bigged up quite a lot for quite a while. But this is this this new position is is absolutely because of the the election. Mm. In that, mm. what arts emergency is trying to be is like out big the big society. It's saying like if you won't give us. The, the, the welfare state we deserve then we're going to have to make it ourselves I guess and we're going to have to make sure that we get the arts that we deserve it's a diverse range of voices mm. Is that the, the driving factor behind you deciding to support? Yeah emergency? absolutely I, I have a complicated relationship with the idea of university mm. I didn't really enjoy it myself and I don't necessarily recommend it for everyone but what I do want is I want to see a diverse arts I want to see like working class yeah. voices I want to see black voices other people of colour and I want to see you know LGBT I want to see people who aren't like me <laughs> I yeah, want to see more of people yeah. who aren't like me and I think that that it's really important for us to have that as a society if we would mm. like because and because arts emergency isn't just about arts as well it's about the humanities as well so it's yeah it's yeah. a whole kind of area of criticism and and and, and, and analysis that we <laughs> we need people who understand it from both sides of that situation in order to, to really get stuff that that makes makes some kind of i don't know difference or, or whatever i mean i'm again i'm a I, i'm too pessimistic to get to get completely hopeful but uh mm. but when i'm on stage talking about arts emergency i do manage to get to that place because of the fact that the passion of the people making it is so yeah, amazing. yeah. and there's also so much pressure against people who want to go into that field anyway regardless of the tuition fees you know i mean like i right. mentioned earlier i had people telling me that 
being an artist isn't a real job and when I was a kid you can't make a living right. doing art. Actually, one of the sort of motivating factors behind me getting involved with Arts Emergency was that I sort of didn't draw at all in my teens. Because when I was a kid, I used to doodle all the time and people would tell me I was good. I actually used to doodle in all of my sister's books, which she hated. I used to just go through them all and draw my favourite cartoon characters. If you read the Nativity story in my house, I was Pink Panther was the fourth wise man. That's a very little known fact. But I, I had everyone telling me, you're going to be a famous artist one day. And so that made me just not want to do art at all. That was um, comments which got written in my end of school book as well. When I left, you know, I think my tutor wrote something like, I'm looking forward to saying I know somebody famous one day. And I was like, oh God, so much pressure. So then I decided I'm not drawing. Right. Didn't draw at all until I was about 21, 22 from leaving school. I actually, I started doodling again. And then one of my friends, Rebecca, who I'm mentioning because she is singularly responsible for me doing this as a career now. She got me drawing again. And then I, I was working at a cinema at the time. And literally a week before the course which I took started, I decided, fuck it, I'm going to throw it all away. The sort of the fears, all the sort of stuff that holds you back. And, and also everybody's forgotten about the art thing now, so I can do it on my terms and not have all this pressure, you know. Right. And, I, and so, yeah, I, I took a, um, a mature student role in this course illustration degree and uh, and so what I was getting to about my motivation I've, I remember one of the things that really got me into drawing in the sense that I really fell in love with some art I saw and thought oh I want to do this it was um, the comic 2000 AD which right. I'm sure you're familiar yeah, with yeah I am very familiar with yeah. and uh, I remember just really loving did you did you read it in the 90s I read it in a weird way but I I, I I read a or few did comics. Did you read it the, hanging upside down from? Well, no, I read <laughs> I read a few comics in the nineties. Uh, I read a few two thousand AD comics in the nineties, yeah. but pr- I properly read it after I'd f- finished university. So that would have been twenty, you know, two thousand and three, something like that. I was working in a library in in Preston in a in a sort of like quite a bleak and. Um, time in my life I wasn't very happy I was quite depressed a lot I guess but I didn't even know I was depressed because I didn't have the awareness I have now yeah and uh but during that time because I had a library card it meant I could take out up to a hundred items so I got all the comics ever like I I I probably (laughs) schooled myself in the history of comics and during that time I read loads of about like I saw it like Zenith and and like all all of the Alan Moore Ballad Halo Jones and all of Mm. that stuff that I hadn't read yet even though I you know, Watchmen and a few other comics when I was a teenager changed my, my life, if you mm. like. I didn't really properly learn comics till later. But yeah, anyway, I've read the, I, I will have read the, the 90s strips, but I won't have read them in the 90s in the format, 90s, yeah. right? So it wouldn't have come in a comic for me. It will have, yeah. It's a big book. Which, I mean, that's usually the way it's going. Most of this stuff that gets released in that book format now. So it's, it's good to see that the comic is still doing good, though, in, in yeah. the British market. But I, uh, I remember, I really remember this one strip called Maze Worlds, which was by a guy, illustrated by a guy called Arthur Ranson, and that was just the one strip that really made me look at the art and go, "Wow, you know, fucking hell, this is great. This is something to aspire to," you know. Yeah. And uh, and so that that is that was the seed which led to me becoming an artist. And after I graduated, I decided to get in touch with Arthur Ranson, and uh, so I sent him a message saying, "Just so you know, I've just graduated on an illustration course, and I'm." doing my dream job and I want you to know that I have you to thank for it so thanks for giving me this massive inspiration you know when I was a kid and he wrote back saying that it made him really uncomfortable to know that he'd inspired somebody to go down this really difficult job path 
and and in the end he said the only way that he can come to terms with it is with the thought that I probably would have done it anyway. <laughs> Isn't that really really telling of sort of right. how how um, how much pressure there is? Even if you get in it to succeed without all the bullshit of people telling you that you can't make any money. Right. I mean, for me, obviously, you need to make money, but the money is the least important. But the, money, but the, but the money, the thing about the money is, and that's where it comes back to arts emergency, is it's the least important thing, but throughout history, because people <clears throat> with privilege and money have been able to bang their heads against the brick wall. Yeah. Whereas it's very hard to bang your head against a brick wall if you haven't got the money to keep yeah, you doing yeah. it, right? And I mean, I'm not saying that, that, I don't, haven't, that I haven't struggled and I'm currently struggling, I guess, as an artist. And I'm, yeah, well, I mean, I, I am know, technically unemployed at the moment. Right, <laughs> right. And I'm, but, but I mean, and, and, and it doesn't even sound like, you know, I mean, I'm, I've got a middle-class background, but, you know, at... at a, a social worker mum and a documentary maker dad so not like the not your not your really really <laughs> classic middle class background but you've got a mechanic for a, for a dad uh, so you, you know you I guess would you call yourself working class or your origins um, working class or? I guess so I mean my mum works she um, she uh, I'm not sure what she does actually yeah. I, mean, <laughs> I think she sews covers onto lampshades or something right like but um, yeah my dad actually did want me to be a mechanic and I I think the, literally the only thing I could have done, which means he isn't disappointed that I'm not a mechanic, is be an artist. Right. So I think I, I got off lightly on that side of things. So I'm not, I'm not interested in cars in the slightest. You know, I've never had any interest. I don't need to drive because I work from home, and also I really like train rides and right. bus rides and stuff like that. And uh, and so yeah, I'd, I'd say we're a working class background. And I'm, obviously, I mean, I've heard you be very open about the privilege which comes with, you know, the certain situations you brought up in. I had a lot of privilege and I have a lot of privilege yeah. now, which, as you say, is very obvious when you look at the voices that are being heard and they get to have the opportunities to, to even have a go at doing what they're right. to do. Because, I mean, this is how I'm always thinking about it and one of the reasons I support Arts, arts Emergency so much. Like, you, you can do some stuff about um, representation for, for people of colour or for, for the LGBT. TQIA <laughs> communities. Get the whole alphabet uh, in there. Oh yeah, you can do stuff for them by 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 having quotas. If you like, or oh, women. <clears throat> Women's an obvious, yeah. um, but underrepresented. It's ridiculous to call women a minority. What with them being a, a bigger percentage of the population. Yeah, but, yeah. But 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 any sure. any any area where it's. Where, of those areas you can get those people in through quotas but what you can't do is you can't get working class people in through quotas because it, they may have a background mm. a working class background but you know you have to have actually climbed out of that in some yeah. way yeah. To, to, to actually be able to make work and so it seems to me that that's why it's so important to, 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 to go to into those communities and, and, and let's, let's be honest like working class people it includes most people of colour in this country mm. because of the fact that, that the way that class is is also related to race so it's not even like uh, and you know it's not even as, as, as clear cut as, as that like by helping working class communities you help other areas of diversity as well but but unless we have people coming from working class backgrounds and schools who've had those experiences have had those like that's the problem like the the media that that is is framing the election that we've just had and that the media that has made the art that that represents us for for throughout history comes from middle class white guys yeah and and how can we change this paradigm without getting people who are not like that into the arts and that's why that's why I support arts emergency so much it's such a it, it seems like such an important thing now more than ever you know i mean i'm 
sure I've seen Twitter the last three days to, enough to know that people just can't believe that you know the Tory government's been voted back well, in based on what they've done. Yeah, well, we not can, even what they promised to do. Well, you know? we can't believe yeah. it, and our and our and our bubbles can't yeah. believe it. But I mean, the, 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 whether whether we have proportional representation or not, still the majority of this country. Oh, you see, this is the is thing. Pro right. I was out. I was out walking on Friday, and I just felt so depressing everywhere. People seemed really quiet. Everyone really depressed. People on Twitter were saying, "I'm on a train. It's really quiet." And I thought. I must be projecting this because yeah. the majority voted for them, but quite a big majority as well. There's a huge distance. I mean, it would be interesting to know if the majority who voted for the Tories feel that happy about it, though. I yeah. mean, it's like, I feel like whether you're left or you're right, looking at the options, it didn't look, none of them looked too happy. <clears throat> uh, like, none of them looked like people you could really believe in. Like, people have voted for the Tories because they think that's the least worst option, but they, I don't think they've been taken up by passion no, for, for the Tories. Like, they've been they've been scared by the Tories' rhetoric. They've been mm. uh, lied to, I, in my view, by the Tories' rhetoric, but they haven't really been... Uh, it, yeah, inspired, and that's the thing. Like, and nor the Labour Party didn't inspire them either. None of our politicians generally inspired people, um, and the ones who did inspired, you know, small bubbles like us. And then, you know, we, and even then, I don't know if how inspired I even felt when I was put in the cross by the Green Party because, yeah, I, it's, you know, it's, it's weird. It's just such a weird world. So, yeah, to give the audience context, we're in uh, the. Hackney Attic, where I do Spark London, because you were kind of going to stay on to Spark London today and tell a story, but you didn't. I, uh, you I can't. had some. Yeah, well, it's trains. Yeah, is, trains is the are. Issue, well, that's. The, but there you go. There's another thing, right? Trains are so expensive now mm. that that oh, the only people who can come to London to do st- <laughs> like to do stuff for people who can af- like afford that, you know. Well, I've, I'm also a bit pissed off with trains today. I'm, I'm in one of those. See, I would say this might be something to talk about at some point. I'm, I mean, I'm not really a superstitious person. I don't... I mean, I, I consider myself um, rationalist. I don't really believe in ghosts and that sort of stuff. I think that people do experience something. I'm not writing it all off. I just don't agree with a lot of the common perceptions of supernatural phenomena. Right, the you know. conclusions. Just to... But also, I also seem to experience loads of synchronicities. And I also have these periods where I just seem to have... Um, Bad luck just hit me like wet mud and sticks to me. I'm having one of those periods at the minute. For one, you will know from being on Twitter, my pet budgies really sick. Yeah. I had to take them to the vets yesterday, which was a Sunday, so the choices were limited. And to cut a long story short, I got a vet who didn't know what he was doing and was really... Well, basically, his prescription and what he suggested to do was based on my vague recollection of what a previous vet had told me four years ago when he had a similar illness. Actually, I then went home and, and went online to all budgie forms and got loads of advice from people. So I think he, he should be okay now. But but um, also when I was... Because I have to give him his medicine by a syringe into his beak, which is really fucking hard. And if you ever try to put a syringe into an unwilling budgie's beak, but they tend to fight no, it. No, I've never done that, strangely. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> Glad to hear you that. You know those times when... Yeah. Well, it's London. I'm, I'm from... Oh, yeah, that's what we do. That's what we do. That's what we do for fun. <laughs> In London, <laughs> and uh, I was trying to give him—I was trying to give him a dose last night. I just realised that that doesn't sound like me having bad luck. So I'm going to qualify why my budgie getting and is me having bad luck. I was trying to give him his shot of medicine last night, and he sort of swung his head around and went all in his eye, and I felt really terrible. And I had to try and wash his eye out, and oh, it was horrible. But then this morning, I—I I gave him his his two shots of the of the um, antibiotic before I came out. 
the second shot he was being really reluctant so I was late leaving so I had to like run to the train station my train to London was due at 11.56 and literally a few seconds before the train was leaving I got here looked going to London jumped on then I realised it was a delayed train going to London that had just happened to be at the platform the same time my one that I was supposed to get was there so I had to buy another ticket for 60 quid fuck and the ticket which I bought was 8 quid fuck (laughs) That's oh, I know that sort of yeah. I I kind of, to be honest though, I was at the point where I just felt like I'm just going to laugh at this. Just like there's a certain point where these things just keep happening and happening and happening that you're like, I'm just going to laugh. Fuck it, it's only money. Yeah, no, yeah, and but I think I think that's quite a common experience for people to like feel like yeah, and I definitely I can relate to it. Mm. Like there's times when everything just seems to be going right. And then there's times when everything just seems to be going wrong. And I think it's just like, I guess, if things go right enough times, you kind of laugh off that, you know, you can, you can write, you don't kind of count when it goes bad. You, yeah. you just notice more good things. And, and then vice versa, you just keep noticing the bad things when mm. they keep happening. But I mean, I also, it was weird because I wasn't mad at the guy who made me pay because he's just doing his job. Well, know? that's good of you to be I that was, way. Well, yeah, it's I mean, hard I think... to have that distance and, re- and, 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 and you know, it's, you're right to feel that way. Yeah, I think it's, it's very from, hard not from to with... take it out on people. From working in retail myself, I think that's where I get it from. Right. It's like, when I was telling you about the vet, I'm not the type of person who would normally whinge about customer service. But as I told you, he literally was looking at his phone before I turned to leave. Right, that's bang out of order. And I had to ask him to open the door for me because I was carrying the cage. You know? yeah. No, that's out of order. So yeah, I do, I do tend to be very sort of... Um, considerate of the fact that the other person probably doesn't want to be putting me in this situation I try to remember that stuff because I've also worked (laughs) in in public service like in in the library it's basically a retail job in some ways Uh, well it's more complicated there are are extra dimensions but you're still dealing with people coming in coming to a counter and having transactions Uh, and actually in a library I think in some ways that could be better for this in some ways it can be worse for this because in the library they're also coming in with problems they want you to solve like they might want you to to, to help them solve a crossword puzzle which is quite <laughs> fun uh, although that can be frustrating if they're like wanting you to solve a crossword puzzle for them in a really entitled way yeah. and like I pay your salary through my taxes so you just <laughs> got to do it that way so it's a complicated one but definitely because I've worked with the public I try yeah, to be it's, nice it's good to have that I do wonder about whether some people realise that they are just human beings who probably don't want to be put in you in that position but I'll say with with like with the people I mean because obviously when you're in retail or any public service you also get it the other way where the customers are being really sort of yep, um, yep, yep. you know <laughs> shitty towards you and in a weird way because I work on my own and work at home I do sort of miss having that the general public come in even though when I was working in retail, I tended to hate the general public. Well, if all of the left and all of the artists <laughs> and all of the bubbles we've been in worked in retail, they would have been less surprised yeah, yeah. by uh, the election result. <laughs> that's true. You know, that's the thing, isn't it? Mm. So we're here in the Hackney Attic by the stage where I do Spark London on the second Monday of every month. From and, uh, Yeah, and, and you would have been going on that stage later to tell a story, but you can't because you've got to get a train back. And you said, uh, you said when we were talking about what, what we might talk about today that the story might be worth worth telling on, on this so. well it's worth telling I can, I can keep it short I mean if it, it, it is like a really long story which is one of the reasons why I wanted to run it by you a few weeks or however long ago it was but right because we only give technically we only give a five minute yeah, minute to, yeah. to stories at Spark 
And I, uh, I, the reason that this story sort of came to mind, it's one that my friends ask me to tell maybe three or four times a year because it's, it's such a good indication of the kind of people that I attract. Like, I just, I just have this thing about me where people know that I can't say no to people and I'm really sort of over... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? I tend to... I put up with more than I should, you know? Right. Like, I, I always get clipboard people coming, making a beeline for me through crowds, all this sort of thing. Right, you find it hard to be rude to people. Yeah, definitely. Right. So, um, <laughs> I'll, I'll cut through the preamble of this story because it is really long, like I say. But basically, I ended up in a situation where I had this friend who was one of those people who... They, they judge you as uh, more high up in their friends list than you consider them, if that makes sense. Right, I understand. And that. this was entirely because we had a lot of differences. Like, he was pretty right-wing, um, um, obviously left-wing. For the, cause just because I need to give him a name for the purposes of the story, I'll call him John. Right. Um, and he... <clears throat> and so, yeah, I'd met him at uni, when I was at uni, and he really... He was really fond of me. He He really used to, you know... He was one of those people who... If you have the slightest disagreement with, then you get loads of emails the next day acting like, you know, you've just broken up with them and, and they're really sorry and they don't want to lose you. And from my point of view, we were just talking about the subjects. And also, um, I'm a person who does like to argue things quite a lot. If, if I sort of, as much for me to, to sort of make strengthen sense of what my you're own. Thinking, yeah. yeah. Uh, actually, one of my friends recently described me as contrarian by nature, which I took as a very eloquent way of essentially saying I'm a twat. <laughs> but, but, um, but yeah, this guy, I, we only saw each other for a few hours a week. So the problems in our personality clashes never really came to the surface because we didn't see each other for enough. And at this time in my life, I also didn't really have that many friends. I'd sort of gravitated towards a new group later on in my 20s. But at this point, it was basically him and just a few other people. So he was, ni- he was nice to me. And, um, and so I gave him the time of day, like, you know. And, and like I said, we did get on on a, on, a, on a less sort of deep and philosophical level than I usually like to speak with people on. Right. And so when, uh, when he suggested going on holiday with me to, um, to Malta... Uh, I decided, yeah, okay, let's go for it. I, I was, I was wondering if I'd been limiting our friendship by having that view of him, you know. So I was like, yeah, okay, cool, I'll go with you. And uh, and this, this is a story which I've, I've wanted to put in various forms, but it always sounds like a really terrible sitcom whenever I try and write it down. And so I always just lose faith in it. Like I thought about doing it as a web strip, and it's just the things that happen in it are ridiculous. Like the first morning we got there, it was, um, it was four a.m., and it was also the first time I'd been abroad. And you know when you when you get off a plane in, into a European country and the heat hits you like you've just stepped into an oven, and it was it was really early in the morning, like I say, and I was just dehydrated like anything. Everywhere was short, so we got back to the hotel, and uh, and I'd read the guidebook before we went, saying that the tap water was fine to drink. So I went and had like eight or nine glasses of it. Went to sleep, woke up the next morning. And literally the first thing I see in the bathroom is a massive sign saying not for human consumption over the sink. And so my stomach was already giving me the early warning signs. And so John, my friend, um, suggested that we sit out on the balcony for a bit to get some sun and maybe that would make me feel better. So we go out there and then he has the bright idea to try and uh, keep the fan in the room on, which only operates when the door's shut, by just latching it slightly so that it would still be able to open and not lock completely. And of course it locks completely. So we're stuck on the balcony. This was about 10 a.m. or something like that. And um, we were also on the top floor of the hotel. It was about 10 or 11 stories up. And uh, John says to me, it's okay, the, the cleaning lady's just 
down the uh, hallway. She'll be here in 20 minutes. So anyway, three hours later, we're both dying from dehydration. And I've luckily been okay. I wasn't as bad as I thought I was going to be, but it was pretty clear we needed to do something. So in the end, he ended up having to call his parents back in England to tell them to call the hotel, which floor we were on, so they could come up and rescue us. And so the manageress who we'd seen when we checked in, and, and it had been quite grumpy, came in and now she was pissing herself laughing when she came in and let us out and we were all embarrassed and, you know, sort of tooted our way out. And uh, and so then John decides that we should go and explore the place a little bit because we'd been sort of confined to the balcony for the whole time right. that we'd been there so far. And uh, so we were leaving and then as we got down to the reception area, I realised that I'd left my phone in the room and not knowing what I might need to rescue us from. In the near future, I said, I'll go back up and get it. And so I was going to the room and as I was going down the hallway, I noticed that you have the regular customer lifts and then there was a separate lift just around the corner that was just like a single lift. And I was looking at it and I'm quite a curious person. So <laughs> on my way back, I thought, oh, I'll hop in this lift and see where it goes. So I jumped in and it was immediately clear that it was like a staff lift. It wasn't maintained. It was all sort of metal and unpleasant to look at. But I thought, well, it will go to the same floors, so it'll be okay. No. <laughs> it opened and I come out in the kitchen. There's like a guy roasting a chicken to my side. And you know how in these situations the key is to act confident? Like if you trip up in the street, it's like I'm meant to do it. Not give away the fact that I'm an imbecile, you know? Right. So I walk out and I, I start striding through the kitchen and the only door I can see goes to a car park. So I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to have to retrace my steps. So I go back through the kitchen and these guys are all looking at me funny again. <laughs> so I'm going past thinking, who is this guy who clearly doesn't work here? And so I call the lift and there were people in it as it comes down and I think, oh God, this is going to be so embarrassing, but I'm just going to have to bite the bullet on this one. And then I recognise the laugh in the lift, and it's the manageress who just rescued us off the balcony. <laughs> so, so I was like, shit, I can't let her see me. So I turned around, legged it back out through the kitchen into the car park, and I was like, I'm going to have to just find myself back onto the main road and go to the front entrance. And it took me 40 minutes to get back onto the main road and find. So you imagine I, my mate has been sat there. I went up in the lift 40 <laughs> minutes ago, and then I come in the front door 40 minutes Right, later. that must have been well confusing. He's like, where the fuck have you been? We had a good few days, and uh, and then as time went on, the differences which I'd sort of known were there were beginning to bubble, bubble to the surface. And one of the things that sort of bothered me about him as well is that he's one of those people who feels the need to comment on people's appearance when he sees them. Right. Like, he, he could not see a girl without saying, oh, I wouldn't fuck her, or something just really horribly yeah, yeah. vile that just right. made my blood boil. And also, there was, there was a, a goth girl on the same floor of us, and... You probably can't tell if I'm looking at me now, but I was a little bit goffy in my teens. And, uh, I think I can tell from looking enough. at you now. But. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, he used to make comments about what a station looked and all this sort of stuff. And obviously with me, I'm thinking, you know, this sounds a lot like the abuse I used to get shouted right. at me from cars and stuff like this. Right. So it was really affecting me and, and I was sort of, there was this barrier between us coming up. And also the thing I didn't realise at the time, but is now so obvious I can't begin to say in hindsight is that he was in love with me basically because he had quite an obsessive personality as I said with the messages if we had the slightest disagreement and, right. and I think also what happened is he he had this plan in his head where he was going to seduce me this week because like the first day we got there and <clears throat> there were two single beds pushed together and he was really disappointed when I separated them and I didn't really understand why and he kept trying to get me drunk every night and as I've said to you I'm not a heavy drinker and 
it, I, I realised that he was he was getting really sort of depressed as the week went on when I was sort of rejecting his advances a little bit. And like I said, I knew that he, he had a bit of a thing for me, but I, I've sort of, I didn't put it up for more than like a man crush, you know. The days went by and, and our relationship really became strained. Hi, uh, I just I come a little bit early and I'm just doing a, a, a recording if that's all right, but oh, sorry, if that's you, cool. When do you want to start setting up? Probably quite, what's the time now? Yeah, yeah, about half an hour. Wicked. Thank you so much for letting us do this. <laughs> I'm nearly at the end of the yeah, story. Yeah, no, so. sure. So, yeah, our relationship was becoming strained and he was sort of being really off with me. And another thing as well is I'm not the kind of person who can be with somebody 24-7. I have to have my own time in a day. And so every day I'd, uh, you know, I'd, I'd go off somewhere and, and he'd be really pissed off with me when I came back for leaving him. And the week went on and then we were falling out and falling out. And basically the last time I ever spoke to him in person was when we came home, the flight home. Because the differences between us had just gotten to a point so big that I I couldn't overcome it anymore because he, he displayed all these personality traits which I found more offensive than anything, you know. Like just it was it was like a manifestation of everything that I really feared when I was when I was younger and getting all this abuse myself. So I, I ended up quite in contact with him. And so anyway, a few years later, I had this memory of that night on the roof toast when he was really drunk. And he told me that as a treat to himself, he'd signed up for an account on xtube.com, which is like an amateur porn website. Yeah. And I was fine with that. What people do in their own name is none of my business as far as I was concerned. I just sort of brushed off. And then the next morning, I sort of casually mentioned it and he looked really horrified. And, and he was like, I'm, I'm worried about what else I've told you now. And I just assumed that that was the end of this, you know, that was it. He just got himself an account and that's what he was worried about. But I'd also reached that point where I felt like I'd Googled every possible question in my mind, like I'd reached the end of the internet. So I was sort of searching the dark crevices for these things to look for and that came to mind. And he's the kind of person who uses the same username across all different accounts. So I thought I'll have a look on XTube and see if I can find him just to see what he was worried about. And, uh, and so I found his account, and it was all the, it, it's basically his output was him masturbating in sports clothes. You know, that was his fetish. And, uh, and then as I scrolled down, I, I began to recognise the room in some of these videos. And I also realised that he was wearing the football kit I took with me on this holiday. Okay. And the two videos were called something along the lines of wanking in my best friend's clothes, he still doesn't know. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> and uh, also, this was, at this point, it was so long after that, again, I had that, you, you've just got to laugh about it sort of attitude. And so I sent him an email saying that I'd found this, this channel and this stuff. And the last thing I ever heard from him was him asking if I still had the shorts and if I could send them to him. Oh. <laughs> It's kind of strange, like, because he wasn't out, right? Not at that time, he is now, yeah. Right, and so that's the thing, like, like a lot of what you're talking about, it sounds to me like it's like kind of like hyper-performative masculinity mm. that people often who that's are what's strange about kind it, of yeah. like, uh, yeah, complicated, decloseted um, can experience. But yeah, that's a really, that's a very strange thing to discover <laughs> that somebody's been doing. I mean, Well, also, because like, when I said I used to go out for walks and stuff, he used to really moan at me because he... He'd say, like, what am I supposed to do for an hour? Well, I guess he found something. Right, 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 right. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess you were doing him a favour after yeah, see, a certain apparently, point. I'm always eager to help. Yeah, I mean, it's funny, isn't it? This, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of a victimless crime, but at the yeah. same time... Well, I, I also, I did, actually, that was right at the end of the spell when I liked football, and I think I basically threw those clothes away as soon as I got home. Well, just by coincidence. Useful, so. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, it's been a real pleasure getting better acquainted with you. The last question I ask everybody is, do you have anything to plug? Well, I guess the most prominent 
topic in my life or thing that I'm involved with would be arts emergency, which we've talked about. And so I would say that if anything we've talked about regarding that sounds like something you want to get behind, then go to, I think it's arts-emergency.org and have a read and click the donate button. Yeah, you can you can you can follow them on Twitter and yeah. all sorts of things too. And where can people find your art though as well? I guess the best place because I have quite a few different sites. So if you go to my Twitter account, which is at Paul Williams Art, you'll find links there. Wicked. Uh, and yeah, and the last thing I ask my guests to do is to say goodbye to the audience individually. <laughs> <laughs> goodbye, audience. I'm sorry I've waffled on for so long. Bye, everyone. Bye. So as I said at the beginning of the show, this episode was recorded earlier this year. And so in the time between when we recorded this and now, I have actually met Turn and Duo. We marched together as part of the Arts Emergency Block just the other day at the End Austerity Now demonstration that happened in London, which I was pleased to be a part of just for my own peace of mind and to know that there are other people who feel the same way as me. And also that I was pleased to be a part of because I really believe in arts emergency. And so it was really great to be out there representing artists who want to try and change the way that the arts work in terms of sharing whatever privileges we have and insisting on having a diverse and equal arts and media and that the arts and humanities are important and belong to everyone and are for everyone. Stand Up Tragedy, who I mentioned in this episode, are going up to the Edinburgh Festival again this year. We'll be putting on an hour of tragedy every day at 7.30 at the Banshee Labyrinth as part of the Free Fringe. Apart from on Tuesdays, when there'll be live recordings of Getting Better Acquainted. We're doing the whole run, the 8th till the 30th of August. It's not just going to be your regular stand-up tragedy where I gather together people from different parts of the arts to do tragedy, so comedians, storytellers, musicians, spoken word artists and more, coming together in a different mix of sad and funny and thoughtful. It's also going to have special editions where there'll be guest hosts, guest collaborations, all sorts of exciting stuff going on. So check out our website www.standuptragedy.co.uk Friend us on Facebook where we're Stand Up Tragedy or follow us on Twitter at Stand Up For Tragedy to get more details about the exciting stuff that we're doing. Stand Up Tragedy tries to create a safe space to talk about unsafe things and to make you cry until you laugh and laugh until you cry. Because I believe that getting together and looking at the hard stuff, looking at the sad stuff and having catharsis as a group is a really important thing. Stand Up Tragedy is also producing two solo shows. There's going to be my first ever solo show called What About The Men? Mansplaining Masculinity. And that'll be every day apart from Mondays at the Cabaret Voltaire at 12.05. And then we're also producing Radcliffe Royds, who's a previous Getting Better Acquainted guest. He's going to be doing his show Travels Through Class from Silver Spoon to Soho Skip and Almost Back Again. And he'll be doing that at 730 so it's up against stand-up tragedy, so go to both, go different days, at the Stafford Centre from the 9th to the 30th 
of August with Wednesdays off. So that's the Stand Up Tragedy lineup at the Edinburgh Festival this year. Please spread the word about all of the stuff that I'm doing. My attitude this year to Edinburgh is kind of make or break, throw everything at the wall and see if something sticks. And so please help me to make that a success rather than a tragic failure. Although I'm a fan of tragedy. So hopefully if it is a failure, I will treat it as something to learn from rather than something to destroy me. But either way, be good for it to be a success. So please spread the word and please come along. can follow Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter at GBA Podcast. You can like it on Facebook and subscribe to it pretty much anywhere that podcasts go to hang out with each other on the internet. Or you can find it on the website www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk. And remember, there are lots of ways to get better acquainted. 